John chapter 1, verses 35 to 51, the end of the chapter. Now, there are a few things that arouse such distrust and suspicion as secrecy, secret meetings, secret memos, people pressing secret agendas. In fact, it's so distasteful to us as a society that in recent years we've passed in most states and in the federal government, we've passed a whole host of sunshine laws, they're called, which largely forbid such closed-door maneuvering in governmental affairs. Such secret ways are no less distasteful in the church, are they? Secret plans and undercover maneuvering arouse suspicion much more than they ever quell disruption, which is why sometimes churches, councils want to work in secrecy. Still, so often it happens, backroom maneuvering, closed-door, tight-lipped ways with councils instead of wide-open discussion in the body, clear flow of information, what's happening, what the Lord's doing, where we're going. But you know, from the beginning, it wasn't that way. The Savior did not conduct his ministry with a hidden agenda in some closet in some sneaky way. Oh, yes, he had an inner circle of disciples where he had the closest relationships, just like we all do. Yes, he spoke in parables sometimes and hid his truth from the disbelieving, those who had rejected him. And yet, at his arrest, he challenged those who arrested him. He said, why do you come sneaking out here in the dark? I've ministered openly, publicly, every day in the temple courts. I've spoken plainly. I've healed in front of everybody. I haven't conducted any secret plan here. His life was lived and his ministry conducted with absolute openness. That open hospitality, that nothing to hide presentation of himself is kind of the theme of our text this morning, I think. Here's kind of the beginning of Jesus' public ministry as he calls the first little batch of disciples to himself. And we see this openness with which he exposes himself to them and gets to know them and asks them to know him. Let me read the text, verse 35. The next day John was there again with two of his disciples, and when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this. They followed Jesus, turning around. Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you'll see. And so they went and saw where he was staying and spent that day with him. It was about the 10th hour. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. And the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we found the Messiah that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You're Simon, son of John. You'll be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. The next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee, and finding Philip, he said to him, Follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We found the one Jesus wrote about in the law, about whom the prophets also spoke, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. 
Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, he said of him, Now here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathaniel asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You shall see greater things than that. He then added, I tell you the truth, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. In these verses, there are two little phrases. There's a little phrase that is used twice, or very similar phrases, which I think encapsulate the whole message of the text, and I kind of like to use that as kind of a couple of pegs to hang all this on. In verse 39, Jesus says, Come, and you'll see. Come and see. And then in verse 46, when Philip is calling Nathaniel, and he says to Nathaniel, Come and see. Those two come and see statements are a little different. One is an invitation from Jesus, and the other is an invitation to someone from one disciple to another to come to see Jesus. Invitation by Jesus, an invitation about Jesus. Let's think about those two things for a few moments. So the first thing we want to learn here is to raise the issue, might Jesus be true? Come and see. First person we talk about in our story is Andrew. Andrew and his unnamed friend. They're talking to Don the Baptizer. They evidently were his disciples. And Jesus comes by and John stops their discussion and says, Look, there's the Lamb of God. And immediately they leave John and they go and begin to follow Jesus. Now, they had undoubtedly heard John's discussion the day before where he had explained how Jesus was the Lamb of God who was going to take away the sin of the world. And on John's recommendation, they wanted to know more. They wanted to check out this Jesus. Might he be true? Might this be true, what John says about him? And so they begin to follow. Well, almost immediately, there's kind of this little awkward moment, I think, where Jesus sees them following him, and he turns around and he says, well, What do you want? What are you seeking? Now that's a little bit of a difficult question. It sounds like a simple little query and you might, they might be tempted to say, oh, nothing, nothing, but that wasn't really true. They were certainly seeking something quite profound. They wanted to know if Jesus was true or not. They wanted to know who he is and what he's about. But how do you ask that really? They didn't quite know what to ask. We kind of find ourselves in that situation sometimes, I think. Bruce Millen's comments, sooner or later when we begin to take Jesus seriously, we face the same question. What do we really want with him or from him? C.S. Lewis puts the issue with typical force. He says, there comes a moment when the children who've been playing at burglars or cops and robbers hush suddenly. Was that a real footstep in the hall? And so us, there comes a moment when people who've been dabbling in religion in man's search for God suddenly draw back and say, wait a minute, was that God? What if we really found him? <laughs> what if he found us? What would we do? 
So Jesus asked and says, what do you want? They didn't quite know how to answer him. And do we tell him really their heart's desire? That might take a while. Or do we say nothing? That's not really true. And so probably somewhat embarrassed and kind of not knowing what level to answer. They did just kind of what we would probably do. They kind of gave a stupid answer. They said, well, well, where, where are you staying? <laughs> We'd do that, wouldn't we? Trying to make conversation, and what do we say? We say, well, where are you from? Where do you live? We don't really care where they're from, where they want to live. What we're saying is we want to know you. We want to have some conversation. We, 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 we want to get to discuss some things with you. Don't quite know how to get started. But no problem. Jesus wide open to their, their interest. Those who have come so far with John the baptizer, he, he doesn't put them off. He says, Come on with me. Come on home with me. And they do. And they go and they spend the rest of the day. And probably the night they're there the next morning still. Come and see, he says. It's his invitation. And what's the result? Well, the next day, Andrew is so convinced that Jesus is the Messiah that he rushes off to tell this truth to his big brother. Might Jesus be true? Come and see. Andrew and his friend did, and in one evening they became so convinced that they dropped everything and followed Jesus. Maybe you're like Andrew. He was a disciple of John. His heart had been prepared. He had come to see his sinfulness. He had come to repent of his sinfulness. His heart was softened. Perhaps that's where you are. Maybe God's brought you to the same place and now you kind of wonder, well, now where do I go from here? I know I need the Lord, but I don't quite know what, and I don't quite know what to ask, and where do I begin? Might he be true? Might he be the one? And he would say to you, as he said to Andrew, come and see. Come spend some time with me. I welcome your inquiry. You won't be disappointed. Well, the next person addressed by Jesus is Simon Peter. We're not told much about Simon Peter here except that he was dragged by his little brother Andrew off to see Jesus. But we know a lot about Peter from other places in the Bible, don't we? Peter, he was something. He was impulsive. He was volatile. He was unreliable. He was the outspoken, no-nonsense, brash, rough-cut fisherman from Galilee. Boy, does Jesus know what he's getting into when Andrew brings his brother? Does he know who this is? Yeah, he knows exactly who it is. He looks intently at Simon, and he says, Simon, I know you. You're John's son, right? Oh, but Jesus doesn't just stop with identifying Simon in terms of who he is or what his reputation is or what family he's from. Jesus sees not just what Simon is, but he sees what he intends to make of Simon. So he goes on and he says, Simon, from now on, you're going to be called Rock Man. That's what Peter means, Rock. Cephas means the same thing. Rock Man? You've got to be kidding. Jesus, you don't know this man. This is fly off the handle, Peter. This is the impulsive, volatile, make a fool of himself, brash fisherman. Rock man? The one thing Peter is not is a rock man. Oh, but history proves that Jesus was right. 
This rock of a man went on to be the first of the apostles, bold and courageous, afraid of nothing, afraid of no one, faithful to his Savior all the way to death. This is the man who led the charge when a little band of disciples in one generation turned the whole world upside down with the knowledge of Christ. Might Jesus be true? Come and see. I suspect there's some Peter sitting here this morning. Dragged somewhat reluctantly here by your wife or your friend. But knowing that your personality is anything but reliable and your faith is anything but steady. And I would say Jesus knows you too, you know. He knew you were going to be here today. And I want you to know that he has a proven record of making impulsive fly-off-the-handle loose cannons into rock men for God. Might he be true? Come and see if he might not do the same for you that he did for Simon Peter. Then in verse 43, we have the story of Philip. I love Philip. Of all the disciples, Philip is absolutely the most ordinary. What is special about Philip? Only the fact that there's nothing special about Philip. Evidently, he's been there when John is baptizing, along with Andrew and his friend and his brother, Simon Peter. They're all from the same little town up in Galilee, a little town of Bethsaida. But you know, even his friends don't happen to think that Philip might be interested in following Jesus. Nobody says anything to him about it. And Philip doesn't seem to be taking any initiative either. He's kind of standing around with his hands in his pockets, watching what's going on, waiting for something to happen, waiting to be asked, I guess. He's so, so ordinary. In fact, we find as we look through the New Testament, every reference that we have to Philip in every place, he seems to be in over his head. Just an ordinary guy. I suspect Jesus wouldn't be interested in ordinary people. They don't have any kind of greatness. Oh, on the contrary. In verse 33, we find that while one brought another and then he brought someone else, Jesus himself went looking for Philip. And when he found him, Jesus himself called him. Come follow me. And when he did, Philip ended up giving one of the most thorough witnesses of who Jesus is. He says, verse 45, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and the one whom the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. Might Jesus be true? Come and see. Come and see what he can do with an ordinary guy like Philip. Like you, like me. I suspect there are more Phillips here than there are, any, there are anything else. Just ordinary folks. And then there's one more. You know, Philip became so convinced that Jesus was true that he went and found Nathaniel. Now, Nathaniel was something else. Nathaniel is the most impressive of the whole bunch here. 
It seems that he, more than any of the others, was expecting the Messiah. He was thinking about it. He was meditating on God's promises. He was wondering what might actually be taking place. As I read about this passage, it seemed that most all the Bible scholars that I read seemed to agree, and, 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 and there's kind of widespread, widespread speculation, at least, that in Jesus' answers to Nathaniel that we see something of what was going on with Nathaniel. The speculation is that Nathaniel was sitting at home under his fig tree, a place where you would often sit, just like we would, sit in the shade and think about things. He was sitting there thinking about God's words. Specifically, he was thinking about Jacob and the vision that, that Jacob saw of the ladder extending into heaven and the angels coming back and forth. And he was thinking about that and how could God deal with Jacob with such grace when Jacob was such a deceitful man, a man full of guile. He didn't want to be that kind of man. Nathaniel didn't. He was laboring to be pure, to be forthright, to be honest. He wondered if God could make such promises and do such great things with Jacob. What might he do with a faithful man? Now that's all speculation, but what we know for sure is that while he's sitting there thinking whatever he's thinking about, along comes Philip. And Philip says, we have found the one that Moses is talking about. We have found the one that all the prophets talked about, Jesus of Nazareth. You can't fool Nathaniel. He understands the prophecies. He knows where the Messiah is coming from, and he says, Nazareth? Uh-uh. Uh-uh. No Messiah from Nazareth, not from that low-rent town. He knew Nazareth. He lived in the next town over. Might Jesus be true? Well, Philip just demanded that he come anyway. Come and see. And so he did. And as he approached, Jesus saw him coming. And Jesus looks and says, Now there is a real son of Israel, a man in whom there's no guile. Now Israel was Jacob's new name. And guile is the word like deceit. That's a word for Jacob. And he says, There's a man that's not like Jacob. There's a man who's like Israel, Jesus says. And Nathaniel is taken back. How, how do you know me? He says to Jesus. How did you know what I was thinking? And Jesus says, I saw you back under the fig tree. And as I said, Nathaniel is the most impressive of all of these. He's the one who knows the most and is expecting the most. He's been thinking about this. He's been waiting. He's been looking. He's been wondering. Now here's a man suddenly that he meets who knows him before he ever saw him. Here's a man who knew what he was thinking before he ever saw his face. Who could this be but one person? And Nathaniel immediately responds, Rabbi... You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus says, you believe because of that little bit of my glory that you've seen? You haven't seen anything yet, Nathaniel. Jesus goes on to explain that he is, in fact, the reality of that vision that Jacob had at Bethel. He's the one that's the link between heaven and earth. Jesus says, you're going to see me, the Son of Man, as the center of God's plan, the way that God's love and power descends to man and man ascends to God, you will come to understand that's me that that all talks about. In other words, he says to Nathaniel, Nathaniel, you ain't seen nothing yet. Wonder if Jesus is true? Come see for yourself. Nathaniel will tell you that he's more than you ever dreamed. 
morning I suspect we're all like one or the other of these guys. Some are like Andrew. Some have come a long way in their spiritual journey. And they now wonder about Jesus. Wish he could know. Wish I could know if he's really true, if he's really who he says. I've heard so much. Maybe sit here every week. Don't quite know how it all comes together yet. Wish I had an opportunity to ask him. Don't know what to say. And then I suspect there's some Peters here. Needy. Out of control. Everyone else knows it, but too proud to admit that under that facade of Mr. Tough Guy, there's a guy who scares you to death for what he might do. And then there are a lot of Phillips here, ordinary folks, standing aloof, waiting for something to happen. Don't really know what, just so ordinary. And we don't make waves. Maybe there are a few Nathaniels who think deeply, who question profoundly, who want to know for sure what's God doing, what's his plan, how do I fit? Might Jesus be true? Might he be the one your heart desires? Might he be the one that answers all those questions? This morning, I, along with Jesus, call you to come and see. What would you do to find out? Would you spend a whole day with Jesus to find out if he's true or not, like Andrew did? Would you take the time to listen to the Savior's claims and evaluate them honestly? Or are you just going to forever sit on the fence and wonder? John Stott wrote a little book called Basic Christianity a number of years ago. In the beginning of this, he has a little section called The Right Approach. And he talks about how do we begin to ask the question of whether Jesus is true or not. Let me quote what he says here. This is the spirit in which our search must be conducted. We must set aside apathy, pride, prejudice, sin, and seek God regardless of the consequences. We know that to find God and to accept Jesus Christ would be a very inconvenient experience. It would involve rethinking our whole outlook on life and the readjustment of our whole manner of life. And so it's the combination of intellectual and moral cowardice that makes us want to not seek. We don't find because we don't seek. We don't seek because we don't want to find. But would you come and see? John Stott again suggests that if you're willing to see that we begin with a prayer like this. God if you exist, and I don't know if you do, and if you can hear this prayer, and I don't know if you can, I want to tell you that I am an honest seeker after the truth. Show me if Jesus 
is true. And if you bring conviction to my mind and heart that he is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, I will trust him and follow him. Prayer like that cannot leave you disappointed. Well, John Stott in his little book goes on to present who Christ is and why we need him and what his work is and how what our response should be. A good basic presentation, a hundred pages or so, of the gospel of Jesus. Might he be true? Might he really be who he says? John Stott says, come and see. In fact, I decided to make you an offer this morning. Since this is a little presentation, the claims of Christ have meant a lot to me. Here's my offer. I'll give you this. Bonafide offer. There's no strings attached except this. If you will agree to read it, open your heart and listen to the presentation of the claims of Christ, I'll give it to you. I have only three copies here. I have a little sign-up sheet. I can get you a copy. If the three are gone, I'll get you one by the end of the week. Put your name on the sheet. Take one if there's one here. If not, put your, and check that you took one, or else put your name there, and I'll get you one by the end of the week. It's a bona fide offer. My challenge to you is, might Jesus really be true? You can sit here for year after year and not really know for certain what's going on. We're kind of playing church. My challenge you, is he true? Then follow him. If he's not true, stay home. Don't sit on the fence. How are you going to know? Come and see. Find out. This is a way of finding out. Bonafide offer. There's another place where our text says come and see. It's not just Jesus' invitation to us. But it's the invitation he calls us to extend to others. So there's a second truth we want to see just for a moment before we close. And that's this. Extend the invitation to come and see. Jesus invites us to come and see, but now we're sent to extend that invitation to come and see Jesus. There's a hot word in business. The word networking is kind of the buzzword in business circles these days. I really personally think it's a new label for the old adage that it's not what you know, but who you know. You know, it's not the program that works, it's do you know the right people, make the right context. Anyway, networking receives a bad rap sometimes. But it's a concept that's old and sound, and that is you do business with people, not with programs or companies. And even in the world of making disciples, look at how this little band of disciples was formed. It was formed by one person telling his friend or brother. Let's just go through it for a second. John the baptizer is the first, and he tells his followers about Jesus. And then he personally points them to a couple of them and says, there he is. And they leave John, and they go follow Jesus. And we need to learn a lesson from John. If we're ever going to be faithful witnesses, let me tell you, you're going to have to learn from John how to play second fiddle. How to see people not in terms of 
what they can add in their relationship to you, but to see people in terms of how you might point them to a relationship with Jesus. This is our task, to extend the invitation to come and see the Savior. Well, then John the baptizer told Andrew, and look what Andrew did. Verse 41, the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him we found the Messiah and brought him to Jesus. I'm sure Andrew's brother, Peter, overshadowed him all his life. We know almost nothing about Andrew. We know all kinds of things about Peter. But how did Peter get there? Andrew brought him. And what do we know about Andrew? You know there are only three times in the Bible that tells us anything about Andrew, and all three times we find Andrew introducing someone to Jesus. That's all we know about him. He understood the need to extend the invitation to come and see the Savior. And so John the baptizer told Andrew and his friend, and Andrew went and got his brother Peter, and what did Peter do? Well, we're not told much about Peter here, but we know what he did. It's Peter who stood on the day of Pentecost and preached the gospel as we know it for the first time, and 3,000 people responded, believed on Jesus, and were baptized and added to the church that day. There's a man who's committed to extending the invitation to come to Jesus. But how did he hear again? His little baby brother loved him enough to tell him and bring him to Jesus. Dr. Bob Smith of Bethel College in St. Paul, Minnesota, once made the observation that 90% of evangelism is love. If you love your friend, if you love your brother, you tell them about Jesus. Extend the invitation. Come to Jesus. Well, then remember Philip, Mr. Ordinary, Interestingly, the man who's the most ordinary of all the disciples brings who? He brings Nathaniel, the most extraordinary, the one who knows the most. Now, I'm sure Nathaniel could argue circles around Philip. Didn't matter. In fact, the first words out of Philip's mouth, Nathaniel argues with him. Nope, Messiah can't be from Nazareth. And what's Philip's response? I don't know. I know what I saw. Come see for yourself. Come see for yourself. He doesn't pretend he can argue everything. He doesn't claim to have all the answers. But he's come to know the Savior. And when he's in over his head, as he often is, he simply extends the invitation for someone to come like he came and see Jesus for themselves. In recent years, we have devised so many evangelism programs. We have evangelism pitches that are so slick you can't say no. We have gimmicks. We have arm-twisting techniques. We have subtle evangelistic approaches that are so subtle that when you get done using it on somebody, they don't even know you've introduced them to Jesus. We have outsmarted ourselves but no one has yet improved on the model set before us in our text. And it's simply this. We are witnesses called to tell what we know. We are witnesses where we are called to tell what we know to the people we know. 
our circle of friends and family. And we don't have to wait until we have all the answers or some theological degree to be a witness who tells what we know to the people we love. Our task is simply to point people to Jesus, to extend the invitation to one after another to come and see for yourself if Jesus is not true. You ever heard of Edward Kimball? Some of you read about him recently like I did. Not exactly world famous. Edward Kimball was an ordinary Sunday school teacher who was faithful to be a witness. One day he felt God's urging to talk to one of his students who didn't seem to understand who Jesus was and what his claims were. And he was so nervous that when he went to talk to this boy named Dwight, went to the shoe store where Dwight worked and he paced back and forth outside trying to get his nerve up to go and talk to this young man about the Savior. We finally got his nerve up and he went in and he sat down and talked to Dwight and Dwight listened to what he said and responded and trusted Christ and followed him. Edward Kimball was an ordinary man obeying God's call to present the gospel to an ordinary student named Dwight. One to one extending the invitation to come to Jesus. And we would never have heard of Edward Kimball, except that that Dwight was Dwight L. Moody, who grew to lead one of the most effective mission agencies the world has ever known, Moody Bible Institute, that has sent thousands of people out with the gospel. Why? Because an ordinary guy named Edward Kimball cared about an ordinary kid enough to tell him about Jesus. Well, Dwight L. Moody preached and F.B. Meyer was converted and he in turn led Wilbur Chapman to Jesus. And then a flamboyant baseball star named Billy Sunday heard Chapman preach and turned his life over to Christ and he began to proclaim the gospel. And in his preaching, a man named Mordecai Ham came to know the Savior. Mordecai Ham became a faithful preacher of the gospel and in one of his meetings through his preaching a young man named Billy came to know Christ as his savior. And that young man named Billy who's now 70 years old has preached to more people than anybody in the world sharing the gospel. We know him as Billy Graham. And how did this all happen and it just keeps going? How? Because an ordinary Christian named Edward Kimball cared enough about an ordinary kid named Dwight in his Sunday school class who didn't understand the gospel to take time and to go and extend the invitation to come to Jesus. That's all. So this morning I call you to be a faithful witness. To extend the invitation everywhere. To everyone you know, come see for yourself. Jesus is true. Pastor Bruce Milne writes, Here lies the secret of the extraordinary spread of the gospel in the early centuries. As the historian Gibbon notes in the book, The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire, it became the most sacred duty of a new convert to diffuse among his friends and relatives 
the inestimable blessing he had received. Statistics repeatedly demonstrate that while gospel preaching is undoubtedly important, personal witness and friendship continue to be the primary means by which people are brought to Christ. Did you get that? That says Pastor Burt can preach his little heart out Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday until you lay him in the grave and your dear brother or sister or friend will never know unless you tell him because he's not here. And that's how the church grows. Not through my preaching. Through our witness. One to one to one to one. This morning, if you know Christ, you have a treasure to be shared. You have a responsibility to be discharged. You have a privilege to enjoy. You have a trust to keep. I call you to be witnesses of the Savior you're privileged to know. To extend to others the invitation He's extended to you. Come and see that Jesus is true. Nothing secretive about Jesus' agenda. He openly in the marketplace presents himself as the one promised, the Son of God, the Son of Man. Might he be true? He says, come and see. Believing that indeed he is true, there can be nothing secretive about our agenda. Evangelism is very unpopular. We're supposed to tolerate others and mind our own business. But if in fact Jesus is true, then our agenda must be just as straightforward as his was. To extend the invitation to everyone we know, one by one, in whatever way we can find to bear witness, to come see for yourself. Come and follow Jesus. May God make us faithful. Amen. Oh, Father. Thank you, Lord, for searching us out, for being open with us. And I pray, Father, for those who wait for us to tell them, though they may be put off when we raise the issue, those, Lord, whose hearts yearn to know truth and they haven't found it, and we know you, Lord. Oh, God, for their sake, may we be faithful to extend the invitation to them. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.